friends and enemies, welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Let this sassy snippet in variety take us into the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers' Baby Stars list of 1925. Inside gossip around Hollywood is that the wampus 1925 crop of baby stars to be introduced at their annual ball, Feb 5, is a weak one, and that most of them have done very little on the screen to justify the selection. It is wondered around Hollywood what they will be able to do when they make their appearance at the ball. Yes, on February 5, 1925, the Wampus were permitted to return to Los Angeles for their annual frolic and ball. No, they did not agree to shut everything down by midnight. The L.A. City Ordinance that had driven them to San Francisco the year before was repealed, giving way for festivities that could run well into the early hours. Motion Picture Magazine described it as being quite the wild night. To tell the truth, the Wampus was overwhelmed by popularity. The old woman who lived in the shoe had mild troubles in comparison. There were so many guests that the hosts were almost distracted. It was, in truth, a mob scene. Some of the guests got in by mistake, one in particular. He was a tall, impressive-looking gent who neglected to leave his name. During the evening he made his way to Harold Lloyd's box and craved the honor of shaking hands with Mildred Davis, Mrs. Harold Lloyd. As Mildred is always sweet and lovely about such things, she surrendered her hand to a warm grasp accompanied by honeyed words of praise. After her admirer had departed, she found that he had nipped off a three-carat diamond from one of her rings. It wasn't all mob scenes and petty thievery. There were also some sick burns, according to a number of sources, including photoplay. Master of Ceremonies Bert Lytell welcomed Baby Betty, a four-year-old entertainer, to the stage. From the crowd, somebody asked, "'Who's that baby?' "'I don't know,' replied another voice." Probably Charlie Chaplin's next wife. Ha! Because Chaplin is a fiend, you get it? He's a sex fiend. Finally, it was time to introduce the next 13 Wampus Baby stars. They were Betty Arlen, Olive Borden, Anne Cornwall, Ina Gregory, Madeline Herlock, Natalie Joyce, Violet Laplante, June Marlowe, Joan Meredith, Evelyn Pierce, Dorothy Revere, Dwayne Thompson, and Lola Todd. Stick around a while. Let me tell you about them. June Marlowe. June Marlowe, born Grisella Groetin had just turned 23 when she landed on the Wampus Baby Stars list. First appearing in films starting in 1923, 
she quickly signed with Warner Brothers, who, after a couple of little parts, put her opposite Rin Tin Tin in Find Your Man, 1924. I've cracked wise about the canine stars of the era before, and certainly not all of the performers I've profiled so far were particularly excited about the prospect of playing in a dog movie. But don't underestimate the popularity of Rin Tin Tin. He was a gorgeous German shepherd rescued in France after World War I by Corporal Lee Duncan, who took the puppy home with him to the United States. Duncan trained Rin Tin Tin, got him to Hollywood, and basically saved Warner Brothers. The budget for Find Your Man was like $60,000 in old-timey money, and it made over 300000 You know, just to give you a taste of the draw Rin Tin Tin had. So for June Marlowe, appearing opposite him with her name on the poster, when up to this point she had barely done anything, it was huge. Not only was the movie a hit, but June's performance got attention too. One excellent review by a theater owner in the Exhibitor's Herald, January 24, 1925 edition says, Joan Marlowe is extra good in this. So is the leading man, but I forgot his name. That's got a sting for Eric St. Clair, but yay for June! Her appearance on the Baby Stars list made perfect sense given her rapid impact thus far. She ended up appearing with Rin Tin Tin three more times, and once she moved over to Universal, they put her in Fangs of Justice, 1926, with Rin Tin Tin wannabe Silver Streak. She was basically the go-to dog girl. Silver Streak, by the way, was apparently particularly fond of June and followed her around everywhere during the shoot. They did give her some other projects over at Universal, but they didn't promote her very heavily though she is in a picture play feature about new lipstick trends, showing off a clean-cut, diamond-shaped mouth, which is just about as odd-looking as you're imagining. The next year, a few more fashion-based fan magazine appearances followed, though little that would paint a picture of her personality or what audiences could expect from her on screen. Wild Beauty, starring Rex, the Wild Horse reads the April 27th issue of the Exhibitor's Herald, Universal's first picture with the superb horse star, June Marlowe, Universal Junior Beauty, featured in the production. Oh, so, five years into her career, still a junior beauty, still billed after an animal star. She never really got beyond the junior level, and as films transitioned into the sound era, it seemed as though June's time in Hollywood might be completely over. A somewhat unusual second act in June's career happened in 1930. No, not that year's serial The Lone Defender, which paired her back with Rin Tin Tin, or rather, Rinty, his son, playing Rin Tin Tin. No, it was a new challenge that met June that year, those little rascals of the R-Gang series. Legend has it that she met R-Gang director Robert F. McGowan in a department store when he just so happened to be searching for the perfect lady to play Miss Crabtree, the gang's new teacher, in their next installment, Teacher's Pet. June donned a blonde wig and appeared alongside Jackie Cooper and the rest of the gang. 
she's well-remembered by fans of the series, some of whom, I'll be frank with you, perhaps put a bit more weight behind appearing as the adult in the Argane comedies than is due in regards to career impact. Making six R-Gang two-reelers between 1930 and 1932 certainly didn't raise her profile at the time or lead to substantial opportunities. Still, the impact that she had on viewers in those two-reelers and on the young ensemble should not be dismissed. I had a big crush on her and I adored her, Jackie Cooper is quoted as saying in Leonard Malton's book The Little Rascals. She was a lovely lady, lovely, warm, nice lady. Fellow our gang member, Dorothy DeBorba, said, June Marlowe, now there was a lady. She was such a very kind, sincere person. Coinciding with her final appearances as Miss Crabtree, June got married and retired from acting. She later wrote a few children's books. What's that old saying? Never work with kids or animals? Well, for June Marlowe, though neither made her into a star, her special touch for working with both speaks volumes to the type of genuine and kind lady that she really was. Lola Todd Her name was Lola, she wasn't a showgirl. But she designed what they would wear, and she made it all with care. I'll stop. I'll stop. But my song is 100% true. Lola Todd's entertainment career did begin with the Ziegfeld Follies, not as a showgirl, but as an assistant costume designer. She dreamt of being a star herself, though. Born in 1904 in the Bronx, Lola, that's her real name, by the way, had a childhood marked by the death of her father Eugene when she was only around three years old. Lola, her brother, and her widowed mother Minnie, working as a stenographer, moved to Colorado to live with Eugene's elderly father. It must have been a jarring change to little Lola. It wouldn't even be the last move, and by the time she was a teenager, Lola and her mother were back in New York and fending for themselves. I mention all of this mainly because Lola's adaptability and pragmatism goes hand in hand with her creativity and expressiveness. Her childhood may have played a part. Around 1923, at just 19, Lola made her way to Hollywood, ready to take her place in the spotlight. Universal quickly took notice, signing her to play in serials, standard, starting with The Ghost City which also featured 1924 baby star Margaret Morris, who had also just joined Universal. Basic Western shorts. One of the more notable series Universal put her in was called Hysterical History. These were one-reelers, about ten minutes long, and often really racist. There was also the Russell and Buster series and others, usually Westerns and adventure flicks. She also appeared alongside Margaret Morris again, in The Iron Man. I spoke about this serial back in episode 5. It was meant to introduce Italian action man Luciano Albertini to American audiences. And perhaps because of its less-than-impressive returns, it spelled the end of Margaret Morris's time at Universal. 
One factor that I didn't consider in my first analysis was that Margaret and Lola looked a great deal alike. I'm not the only one who thinks so. It was likely intentional in their casting and is mentioned in the Moving Picture World's review of The Iron Man. Margaret Morris is satisfactory as the heroine and Lola Todd as the adventuress, and the action is made more convincing as they really look like each other. See? It seems entirely possible that when considering their roster of universal players after the Iron Man, the studio decided that they didn't need doubles of a certain type. Margaret may have been given their initial push, but Lolo was the one to make the cut and was given even more shorts. She was going into 1925 and the Wampus Baby Stars list with quite a bit of momentum, and it felt like she was on the cusp of something. Pluck one out! says June's picture play in a small feature on Lola, where they say she was called a plucky kid over at Universal, and they recount how she left school early to help her family in their financial troubles. This gave her gumption, drive, a work ethic, and honest determination. She's a quiet little thing who seldom has much to say, but who uses her brain to advantage in studying and improving her work. She wants, more than anything, to play vampire roles, but at present plays whatever is offered to her. The boys on the U lot all root for her and pick her as a comer. I'll be getting into vampire roles a little bit later in this episode, but they mean a vamp, a seductress. It's kind of hard to imagine quiet little Lola playing one. And unfortunately, despite all the buzz, Universal didn't offer her very much on the heels of her Wampus Baby designation. She worked in 1925, sure, but only in three productions. Now, they did put her in the feature Red Clay, but it doesn't appear to have gotten wide release until 1927. Not helpful to one's star power in 1925. And when it was finally released, people didn't care so much. Take this note advising other theater owners from the Exhibitor's Herald. Red Clay, William Desmond, 5%. That's capacity in the theater. Very good picture, but not a Western, and it's an old one, so leave it alone. Why bother? At least this did show Universal's willingness to try her out in longer pictures. And in 1926, she was in a string of Westerns, and then, through a loan out to Columbia, the drama Remember. This line from a review of Remember in Hollywood Topics might just shed some light on why Lola's career was feeling a bit aimless. Lola Todd is a pretty eyeful, but an uneven actress. As her time with Universal came to a close, the next couple of years were no better for her career or for her general publicity. Something made all the worse because of the rise of one Thelma Todd. A confusion of names between Lola Todd and Thelma Todd, both picture actresses, obliged the former to change her screen name to that of Carol Mason, says Variety's April 18, 1928 edition. This was decided upon Lola Todd's return from New York, where she encountered mistaken identity and was the subject of press stories and pictures carrying the name of Thelma Todd where Lola Todd should have been used, or vice versa. Although the girls possess a decided difference in appearance, 
this did not prevent mistakes. I've never seen a name change go well this far into someone's career, and it's kind of wild that Lola was the one who chose to change her name when she had been in Hollywood at least three years longer than Thelma. But Thelma was on the up, and Lola had been slowly on the out. Her pragmatic side, though I'd argue that she gave up too easy, figured changing her name was the path of least resistance. As it stands, there's no evidence that she was ever officially credited as Carol Mason, though to be fair, there was no work to be credited in after 1928. Reportedly, Lola took her leave and worked post-filmdom as a secretary rather than follow the more common path of taking any teensy uncredited role that came her way. Sometimes, pluck doesn't mean forever grasping for an unreached dream, but pulling up your sleeves and getting to work at something else. But no, the Wampas weren't right about Lola Todd. Anne Cornwall Little Anne Cornwall began her film career appearing in a number of Select Pictures Corporation productions in small roles supporting their star, Alice Brady. My man Godfrey Franz will know Brady as the Bullock family's kooky matriarch. Anne also, early on, had the opportunity to appear in films with Irene Castle and Lionel Barrymore. She had a good training ground, and it didn't take long at all before she caught the attention of our friends, the Lemleys, over at Universal. The surprising thing is not the rapid rise on the screen of Anne Cornwall, who is being starred by Universal in The Girl in the Rain, says the Motion Picture Weekly in July 1920, but the fact that this dainty bit of femininity should have appeared in half a dozen photo plays before producers discovered that she is just the type of girlhood that audiences throughout the world are begging for. If talent were measured by inches, Anne Cornwall, the star of the latest Universal production, The Girl in the Rain, they also say, would not rate very high in the world of silent drama. Anne is several inches shy of five feet and constructed accordingly. She is the sort of girl who would be described as no bigger than a minute and knee-high to a grasshopper, but each of Anne's 57 inches represents a different variety of cleverness, and her magnetic appeal is quite unusual. See, I wasn't being cute when I called her little Anne Cornwall. Or if I was being cute, so was everyone else. The Girl in the Rain was just one of the pictures Universal gave Anne to star in that year. This was in 1920, earlier than any of the other Universal players I've covered so far were at that studio. You may recall the way that Universal tended to do things in just a couple of years' time was to, not always, but often, start young ladies out in serials. If they could prove themselves there, they would graduate to leading lady roles in support of a male star in features, and if they did well enough in that, only then would they be given their own features to star in. But back in 1920, they hadn't really nailed down their ideal progression just yet. Putting so much on Anne's untested shoulders, 
may have been part of the reasons they developed their later methods. See, in 1920, she appeared in The Girl in the Rain as the Star, The Path She Chose as the Star, and La La Lucille as the Lucille. So they were building her up, setting her up for big stardom, but the pictures didn't do as well as they hoped, with no name recognition, that makes sense, and so Anne was cut. She functionally disappeared for over a year, as her contract not being renewed coincided with her marriage to Charles Meng. When she reappeared in 1922, it was like starting from scratch. Anne spent the next couple of years supporting much larger stars like Gloria Swanson, Betty Compson, and Constance Talmadge. In 1924, the lead-up to her appearance on the Wampus Baby Stars list, she actually only appeared in four productions, and only was the leading lady in one feature, Forty Horse Hawkins, a cowboy comedy opposite Hoot Gibson, and she's not mentioned much at all in the reviews. All that's to say, I'm not quite sure why Anne was chosen for the 1925 list, and though she went on to appear in some interesting pictures like The Wrongdoers with Lionel Barrymore again and The Splendid Crime with Baby Daniels, if Anne's star power was growing, it was by millimeters. And she got a little bit more publicity, almost always mentioning how tiny she was, but nothing that reaches out and grabs one's attention. Like in the June 1926 issue of Picture Play magazine, they had an article, The Tiniest Girls in Pictures. She gets three sentences. Anne Cromwell, who has not yet reached stardom but who is winning her way in pictures, is four feet ten and one half inches. They call her the half pint. She is always the butt of some joke about her height. Not yet reaching stardom, but winning her way in pictures feels a bit like the hamster wheel that Anne was on. By the latter part of the decade, she had finally stepped off, but into Christie comedy shorts, not stardom. In 1929, she separated from her husband, who, according to Variety, then suffered a breakdown and was hospitalized and then passed away from pneumonia at age 50, all in the span of just a few months. Photoplay reported that Anne was by his bedside, despite the separation. Miss Cornwall is an old screen favorite, says Hollywood Filmgraph's February 8, 1930 edition, and has a twang to her voice which should fit into the talkies. She is cute, petite, and clever, and what more could one ask? But Anne was ready to let go, twang or not. She left film later that year when she married for the second time though she did return seven years later to take on uncredited roles, which she did for the next 22 years. She never again strived for the top. Were the Wampus right? No, but my gosh, it must have felt close. Please excuse this interruption as I bring you a real ad from Photoplay in 1925. When hair is beautiful, beware. Even the most beautiful hair may be doomed to destruction. Beneath the beauty of today, the scalp warns you of boldness tomorrow. No head is safe, but most scalp troubles can be avoided if you start soon enough. 
Fortunately, nature has provided three warning signals to tell you that your scalp needs care. One, if your scalp is too oily, beware. Two, if your scalp is very dry, beware. Three, if you find dandruff, beware. Once you discover which of these conditions threatens your hair, you can adopt one of the three treatments shown here to keep the scalp healthy and the hair beautiful. Wild root hair tonic plays a large part in such methods. Put a bottle on the bathroom shelf where you can use it frequently. Two special combinations of wild root products are suited to combat the dangerous conditions of excessive oil and over-dryness. Wild Root Co. Buffalo, New York. Wild Root Hair Tonic. The Old Movie Lady Note. Wild Root Terralium Shampoo contained crude oil and pine tar. The original tonic was mostly alcohol. And the logo for the company is racially insensitive. Dwayne Thompson Born as Laura Dwayne Maloney in 1903, Dwayne Thompson arrived in Hollywood around 1921. She began her career calling herself, under the instruction of a Christie Company executive, Violet Joy. But according to close-up, she disliked the name excessively and dropped it as soon as possible. She was a Dwayne through and through, apparently. Luckily, she had only appeared in a few comedy shorts under the Violet moniker. Things didn't really start moving and shaking for her until 1923, when she was named as leading lady for both, in different series, Bobby Vernon and Sid Smith. Neither is terribly well known today, and both died quite young. Sid passed away as a result of bad liquor in 1928 at just 36, and Vernon from a heart attack at 42 in 1939. The trend of pairing Duane with a more established comedic leading man continued with a series with Neil Burns, and then likely her most high-profile pairing with Walter Ayers, who incidentally also died young at just 39 in 1933. Walter is not really well known today, but back in 1924, he had drawing power. Everybody loves a fat man, declared the Christie Company in a full-page ad in the Exhibitor's Herald September 13, 1924 issue, clarifying when he is a screen comedian. They continue on to say, The foremost fat man of motion picture comedies today is Walter Ayers. Presumably, they can make this claim because Roscoe Arbuckle had had his career demolished by this point. His six two-reel comedies will be pictures of unquestioned entertainment and box office value. Dwayne Thompson will be his leading lady. With all these pairings, it's actually hard to get a good read on Dwayne herself, but she was getting enough attention to land on the 1925 Baby Stars list, and to jump ship from Christie's that she could appear in some feature-length productions, most noteworthy if not successful of which was the Charles Ray picture Some Punkins, 1925. 
Charles had been a major star in the 19-teens and early 20s, but by 1925, his career was in a tailspin. He had rose to fame in charming bumpkin characters, then tried to be a more sophisticated leading man and failed spectacularly. Some Punkins, as you may be able to glean from the title, was an attempt to return to form, but it failed to revive his prospects. Charles Ray also died, while not wildly young, in his 50s from a tooth infection. Back to Punkins, though. In motion picture news, when advising theater owners how to market the picture, they specifically said, mention Dwayne Thompson. Not much would get people to come see some pumpkins, but if anyone could, it would be her. And anyone couldn't, I guess. Unfortunately, neither this nor much else that she did over the next couple of years was taking her to the next level, and she began to wonder if there was something else standing in her way. Dwayne Thompson is the cutest little girl in Hollywood. She has always been cute, but she has never been as cute as she is now with her new nose, picture play explained in their September 1926 issue. No one else ever noticed anything wrong with her old nose, but for a long time Dwayne was dissatisfied, so she told all her friends that she was going away for a few weeks. What she really did was get a specialist to fix up her profile, and now you ought to see it. Not that I'm trying to dig up business for facial artists, but Duane's nose is really a beautiful job. Would a new nose make Duane a star? No, it wouldn't. It's impossible to say the exact timeline of her procedure, but Duane had been announced for an important role in The Return of Peter Grimm right around this time, and was rather unceremoniously replaced by Janet Gaynor, who quickly became a star. Did her original nose cost her the part? Or the recovery? Or the new nose? It could be completely unrelated, but it must have stung nonetheless. Dwayne freelanced for a couple of years, then signed with Universal. Now, I spoke earlier about how they, especially by this point, typically placed actresses in serials to prove themselves first, but luckily for Dwayne, she had already shown her experience and merit. That said, they evaluated her as being at the leading lady to a more established, though still B-list, male star level. So that's exactly what she had already been doing for her whole career by this point. They never graduated her up to the next level, and Duane's career was over by the end of the decade. Though she married and retired, Duane's name kept cropping up in judgy fan magazine pieces all about that nose of hers. Thorns in a Bed of Roses is a headline in Picture Play, their March 1931 edition. Though favored players of Hollywood live in the lap of luxury and are young and healthy enough to enjoy all that money can buy, they are forced to practice self-denials and undergo tortures of the flesh that recall the saints of old, and all for that great god, career. 
It details all kinds of diets, procedures, and regimes, and at the end of a long list of names says, Dwayne Thompson and others had nose corrections. Few of them are still on the screen. Would you like a new nose? From Photoplay, August 1930, was fundamentally the same article, also name-checking Dwayne. And then there was the most sensationalist that I found in Motion Picture's April 1929 issue. The Flesh and Blood Racket. Vanity drives Hollywood to suffer the horrors of the surgeon's knife. So you put yourself through hell and it didn't even work, you vain fools. Why are you so obsessed with how you look? When your face is your livelihood and your income wholly dependent on perfection, what a mystery. Duane had tapped out by this point, so to keep including her in the narrative is frustrating. Her final films were released in April 1929, filmed far before the flesh and blood racket piece came out, and then also took time to tell you that her original nose was too flat, but again implying that she had something to be ashamed about for getting it worked on. Leave the woman alone. Luckily, Duane appears to have risen above and had a perfectly lovely life with her second husband and a daughter, appearing occasionally on stage. She also found some success where her nose didn't matter one bit as a reoccurring voice on Luella Parsons' radio program, Hollywood Hotel. Were the Wampus right? Nah. But she outlived almost all of her old leading men. Betty Arlen Who? I'm not being cruel, I'm just saying what everybody was saying back in 1925 when the Wampus put Betty on their list. She was only 15 when they placed her on that list, if the generally accepted November 1909 birthday is correct, though of course various publications put her at 16 or 18. Betty didn't attend the Wampus frolic, and really, nobody knew who the hell she was. (laughs) Screenland called her a chestnut-haired, demure little miss, but had little else to say except that she was a dancer because Betty was yet to appear on screen in any capacity. With no indication of what she could really do or even what type she might play, the fan magazines took a throw-stuff-at-the-wall-and-see-what-sticks approach to Betty. Motion Picture Magazine, for example, in their April 1925 issue's introduction to the baby stars called The Lucky Thirteen, show us a picture of Betty, well, dressed like a clown. She is the embodiment of cuteness, they declare, and point out her naturally red cheeks, which doesn't make the clown picture any better. And if people were waiting and hoping the 1925 would shed some light on just who Betty could really be and play, well, it'd be waiting forever. You know, I really thought that 1923's Margaret Leahy might hold the record of the least impressive career of any Wampus baby star ever, but at least her one credited role is in a well-known feature-length film with a major star. Not so Betty Arlen. It's up for debate whether she was ever credited for anything at all. 
A Punch in the Nose with Lucian Littlefield, Husky Haynes, Al Sinjin, Lidge Conley, Jimmy Finlayson, and others. It was a Hal Roach two-reeler. Someone on Wikipedia thinks she was credited, but everything I've found would just lump her in with the and others designation. She had a couple of other sporadic uncredited background appearances, but essentially never did anything at all. So wait just dang minute. How did she get on the list? Well, it's been a while since I told you a story of a Wampus member using the list to impress a girl. But, rather unfortunately, because she really was a girl at only 15, here I go again. Betty was sponsored as a Wampus baby star by the West Coast Theaters, Inc., which was an association made up of 140 different movie theaters. Theater manager Louis Golden was an active member of that association. Who's Louis Golden? He's a wampus, for one. And Betty Arlen's adult husband, for another. I don't know exactly when they got married but it was sometime before September 1925, as per a reference in Variety. So, you know, before her 16th birthday. Given just how sporadically she worked over the years, making uncredited appearances even into the 1950s, I hope that for Betty, extra work was just a bit of fun, rather than some unfulfilled dream. She divorced the groomer in 1932. Good for her. So no, the Wampus weren't right. But frankly, it's their own fault for listening to a creep. Madeline Herlock. I don't know that we've had a proper vamp yet. How exciting to bring you Madeline Herlock, even though, as you'll see, she was a comedy vamp rather than a super serious one. Madeline was born somewhere around 1897 and starts her career on Broadway in the late 19-teens. Oddly, a marriage notice from 1917 of her first marriage refers to her as a universal star. I can't find any credits from that time period, so whatever she was up to couldn't have been making much of an impact there. Her first known credits start in 1923, when she joined Max Sennett, and quickly was, as the Exhibitor's Herald puts it, called out of the beauty parade, and placed in feature roles in his shorts. She quickly found her type, as a Motion Picture News review of In Bad the Sailor puts it in December 1923. Madeline Herlock is trying for championship honors as the leading vamp, and her trifling ways are responsible for all the troubles and comedy in this film. Vamps, originally short for vampire, were a character type that ebbed and flowed in popularity and specifics over the silent era, but at their core were bad girls and seductresses, morally suspect and quite sexy. A proto-femme fatale, the vamp cared about nothing save her own desires. By the time Madeline came onto the scene, it's clear that the vamp's potential for laughs was being explored, and she played the part well, 
fitting right into Senate Studios. And part of the reason she worked so well, at least the fan magazines want you to believe, is because she isn't so far off from the character she played. Madeline Herlock slithered onto the set, says Screenland's February 1925 issue. She has an eye which surveys life coolly, and a manner of ultra-collection plainly showing that she has herself in mind and the world by the tail. Her reserve is terrific. If one should yell, Fire! Run for your life! on the set where she is working, she would probably say, What a bore! It was, of course, around this time that she was named a baby star, coinciding with a real push from Senate that began the year before with frequent mentions of her beauty and, this is maybe a bit odd, her specifically gorgeous back. She graced Photoplay's June cover, her face, not her back, looking languid and seductive. Inside, they mentioned that she'd make a beautiful bride, but Madeline doesn't ever intend to fall in love. Another subtle support of the idea that she's just as cold-hearted as the vamps she plays on screen. Madeline got a lot of coverage in Photoplay that year, including a profile called Who Says Vampires Are Through? various fashion pieces, and being spotted dancing with John Gilbert in a nightclub. It's a promising sign for one's buzz to have that kind of light gossip, especially after literally still only appearing in two-reelers. She sure was busy with those two-reelers, though, often opposite Ben Turpin, Eddie Quinlan, or Billy Brevin. Nine credits in 1925, another ten the next year, plus finally an appearance, albeit in a small role, in a feature Dawn Juan's Three Nights. Still, shorts were her bread and butter, and vamp rolls were still her forte. By 1927, she was one of Senate's most popular performers, but she wasn't making strides. Though a feature-length film called The Romance of a Senate Bathing Girl was announced with Madeline in the lead, it doesn't appear to have ever been made. I can't find anything that fits the mill anyway. And moreover, despite articles claiming, as Pitcherplay did in the 1927 issue, that she was the only actress brave enough to tame Numa the Lion, another indication that she was bad and exciting, Madeline was getting bored. She had been playing one type of character, the vamp, in one type of project, two real comedies, for the entirety of her career. And so in 1928, perhaps demonstrating that she did have a devil-may-care streak after all, she up and moved to Honolulu. It wasn't permanent, but her departure from the screen was. She later married two different Pulitzer Prize winners, at different times. Obviously, she wasn't, despite what the fan magazines insisted, that much of a vamp in real life. Was she a star, as the Wampus predicted? Sadly, no. Madeline Herlock never quite rose to that level, but she did play her part most effectively. So with the records of achievements of those selected in the past, the Wampus Baby Stars of 1925 have excellent prospects of a bright future, says Photoplay. 
They are on the threshold of stardom. The door will open to some of them. The door didn't open to very many of them, let's be real. Well, that's the first half of the Wampus Babies of 1925. I'll be back next week with the rest of the lot. If you've been enjoying the Old Movie Lady podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating, and if you're in the mood, a lovely review. Tell your friends. I like friends. I've been your host, Marg, the Old Movie Lady, an unholy mess of a girl.